everything, but it works perfect for Easter. It's really nice. Thank you. Well, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox, a.k.a., what is it also known as? Anybody know? Somebody said it. Easter, exactly. Exactly right. The calendar date is better known as, and is better called, Easter. I also happen to like Resurrection Sunday. That's got a nice ring to it also. But why, Pastor Mike, why would after this jubilant day of feasting, egg hunting, songs like we just sang, so triumphant, how could we start out our Paschal celebration like that and then you come along and throw a wet blanket on it describing Easter with such a Debbie Downer term, dry and detached. Fear not, it only sounds anticlimactic, I pray. This first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox, though awkward, actually conveys something important that we sometimes inadvertently leave out of our high praise and our hallelujahs on this special Easter celebration day. It's cosmic. Cosmic. The repercussions of this day on which we celebrate our Lord's triumph over death and the grave, these repercussions certainly impact our weary hearts, especially coming off fresh from our long Lenten journeys, maybe things we sacrificed. Today, with fresh hope, renewed joy, we see our own lives lifted up, caught up indeed, in this ultimate victory which our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ freely shares with us for free. Because I live, Jesus declares, you also shall live. John 14, 19. Amen to that. But creation itself also joins our chorus of hallelujahs. And at the same time, creation gives off a few of its own moans and groans too, which we can relate to from our own experience with our aging bodies. Today's gospel records, and behold, there was an earthquake when the angel came down and removed the stone. Matthew's gospel also records earthquakes taking place in chapter 27 as well when Jesus was on the cross and he yields up his spirit. There was an earthquake at that time. The rock split, graves were flung open. This is where we begin to see now a hint of the redemptive repercussions on a more cosmic level. I think today we can all vouch for the reality of Romans Eight in our own times, and I'm talking about natural disasters, uh, be they the, uh, rivers that give us such cats and dogs in the downpour, or the hurricanes, or the heats and, and fires. Natural disasters, they just seem to be running amok these days. Romans 8:19 says, "For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God." In other words, our redemption, that is the redemption of our bodies physically when Christ returns, and the redemption of creation, that is with the new earth, they seem to be tied together. St. Paul has a little bit more to say about this, again from Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves, Paul continues, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So you can see the link there between our earthly bodies and the groaning earth itself. But it wouldn't just be the earth alone in this big picture as we get a wider and wider shot, because in the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus talks about the new heavens and the new earth that await our Lord's return. Jesus says in Revelation 21, Behold, I make all things new. So we're talking about a true cosmic repercussion here that our Lord's resurrection from the dead inaugurates on that very first Easter morning. A new day has dawned. A new era has begun. Jesus is the true first fruits of the resurrection. Unlike, say, Lazarus, you remember that guy, who's, who Jesus raised from the dead? His resur resurrected body would have presumably just grown old and he had to die all over again, but not Jesus. Jesus himself emerges from the dead with a glorified body that seems to share certain qualities of his Bethlehem body, if we could call it that. That is, Jesus, after his resurrection, eats fish, he takes drinks, he walks on the sandy shore, he walks on the paths, he receives hugs around his ankles, all of which seem natural enough. He even says, I am not a spirit. Yet at the same time, he certainly comes and goes in a more supernatural way, doesn't he? Appearing behind locked doors, disappearing from the dinner table, and he just vanishes in an instant. And on Ascension Day, he floats up, up into the sky and is enveloped by a cloud. Now, I, I can't wait to get one of those kinds of bodies. Who needs a jetpack, right? Whereas St. Paul affirms that we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit, he also writes, we groan inwardly. Okay, and some of us groan outwardly too. I hear you when you get up and down. As we wait ourselves, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, and that, that's all there in Romans 8 as well. So the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus will send after his ascension, the promised Spirit takes up residence within us at our baptism, and he begins to transform us into Christ's image, and we begin to produce spiritual fruit, love, joy, kindness, patience. If we continue with the Lord's work in our lives, um, we're not going to be anything close to what we'll be when we cross that finish line and get into heaven. Sanctification, as we call it, bearing of the Spirit's fruit in our lives, is not quite perfect this side of heaven. You'll still need to be eagerly awaiting the perfection that comes only with the Lord's return at the end of the age. I know I certainly have a long way to go in the patience department. I don't know about you, because just talking about this rich inheritance that awaits us, God's adopted children in Christ, all that really makes me want to realize all those blessings now, God. Save now. Bring them on. Not very patient. Okay, so our gospel lesson today really brings us back down from all this puts our feet back on planet Earth, so to speak. I brought up all the cosmic repercussions of Easter, but the life after death event of Easter, it really starts small, doesn't it, in our text? And you could think back to Christ's birth as well 
in a similar fashion. You have this great company of the heavenly host appearing with that herald angel, all praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And to whom were these vast choirs of angels singing? To whom was this heavenly multitude performing for a few sleepy-eyed lowly shepherds? That's who. Uh, that, that really was a small start, wasn't it, back then? So in our text, it's just a couple of Marys to witness this miraculous dawn of resurrection life, the beginning of a new creation, the eighth day, so to speak. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, it says. We're not even totally sure who that other Mary was. Some say it was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and it doesn't really appear that Matthew himself is exerting too much effort to identify her with much detail. Oh, it was just that other Mary. When you start to piece it together with all four gospel accounts, you quickly realize, you know what? There are quite a few other of the other Marys. It seems like every other woman was married, called Mary back then. That said, how many people do you know, though, who were ever addressed by an angel? That's got to rock you to your bones. Of course, the standard greeting that an angel seems like he's required to say when engaging with humans is, First off, fear not. So that's the first thing out of this angel's mouth to the women. Fear not. That's, what's interesting, if you back up one verse to verse 4, it says about the guards in front of the tomb, and for fear, for fear of that angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men, paralyzed with fear. I find it kind of funny, but I'm glad it didn't happen to me. The whole guard was paralyzed with fear, and apparently this angel did absolutely nothing to allay their fears, but to the women, he calms them and says, fear not. To those guards, he's like, yeah, you guys should be very afraid. Now I'm thinking if I could scare people that easily myself, I don't think I would make a very good angelic angel. Thank God I'm just a lowly sinner redeemed by a loving Savior. These ladies obey the word of the Lord from that angel, though. It says they left with fear and joy. When we see that combination in a lot of scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, the scripture says. Then in 1 John, you find perfect love casts out all fear. Now, I think Luther does a nice job of fitting these two apparently contradictory things together. In his small catechism, Luther writes, you shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And then the other explanations for each of the other commandments follow a similar pattern. What's the explanation? We should fear and love God so that. So fear and love. There's a difference now between dread fear, which is what the tomb guardsmen experienced at the sight of the angel. They became like, they became like dead men. That's dread. It's what the demons had before Jesus when they encountered him. They dreaded Jesus, and for good reason. Okay, that's dread, but then there's reverence. That is the healthy fear of those whom you respect, those whom you obey willingly out of love, out of your heart, and in recognition of your proper relationship to others. For example, honor your parents, right? 
These women, the Marys in today's account, may have initially felt some dread, but when the angel calmed them saying, don't be afraid, their dread turned to something more like reverence. They weren't fearing for their lives anymore at this point, but they obeyed, they went on their way with fear and joy, it says. And while they were carrying out the angel's instructions, going back to Galilee, lo and behold, they were next visited by the Lord Jesus Christ, who arose from the dead himself. Here's an interesting tie-in. Now, it's Jesus, the risen Jesus, that is, himself now, who's using that same reassuring word of comfort to the women. Don't be afraid. He has to offer, uh, offer it. But even before that, the women already knelt down, started clasping his feet and worshiping him. So already they didn't let whatever fear they may have had to obstruct their expression of love for their beloved teacher that they thought was gone forever. Jesus meets them, greets them, and commissions them, these women. He commissions them to be his apostles, essentially, in that limited sense. In the culture in that day now, by contrast, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in court. I don't know if you realize that, but today we probably have some female lawyers in our congregation. So there's something quite strange about that practice, but Jesus apparently was not a great fan of it either because he chooses to reveal himself alive for the first time to none other than these two women. And then he commissions these women to go. Tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus sends the women ahead to his brothers. And that word for send is apostello, from which we get our word apostle, which means sent one. So while the women weren't given any official office as such in the early church like that, they were given the privilege of first seeing the resurrected Messiah, alive and well. How awesome that would have been. Furthermore, they were given the additional privilege of being apostles to the apostles, sent to tell. So what do you think happens when the women reach the 11 disciples and they tell the men what, what they experienced, what happened? Well, you kind of have to dig around. You have to search through all four Gospels because Matthew leaves you hanging on that question. But Luke finishes it up, this part of the story. Luke writes, When the women came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others, but they did not believe the women. Right? Saw that one coming because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, I'm just quoting the scripture, all right? That's not my, that's what Luke 24, 9 says. Um, but to put the best spin on it, the best construction, and also to save you husbands from being bonked on the head if you read this aloud at home with your wives, the best way to understand this, I think, uh, this portion of the gospel is to probably to strike up the apostles' reluctance to believe not to the women, but to nothing else than their having never experienced anyone as brutalized as Jesus was and then crucified and then pierced through with the sword coming back from the dead. They have nothing to compare it to, so they're slow to believe. And I think that's really more the explanation of what's going on. It's a big ask for anyone, really, to believe that he is risen at this point in the game. 
And that's why the mere fact that the women are the first to testify concerning these things actually points to the authenticity of their report. So think about it. In that day, if you're going to make up a story, if you're going to spread lies that Jesus rose from the dead when you know he really didn't, um, and everyone saw his stone-cold body being taken down off the cross, you wouldn't entrust the testimony of a resurrected Jesus to anybody whose testimony was not legally recognized. That's not the way you want to start out. Uh, there are much better ways of fabricating the story. So in this case, the women being the first to testify, that's a mark of authenticity, of truthfulness, that the resurrection, resurrected Jesus is actually uh, risen, as he has said. And so with that very small beginning, with the two women filled with a mix of joy and fear both, they will eventually be joined by the believing 11, or excuse me, 10 at first because doubting Thomas is a little slower yet to come around to make it the 11 and the other disciples that meet in the upper room. Today, more than 2.5 billion, this very day, right now, 2.5 billion people profess their faith in our risen Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. Those are truly cosmic proportions. But that means there are still billions left on this decaying planet who don't know their sins are paid up in full by a loving Savior. Jesus has since sent his Spirit to the church on earth. Now in the power of the Holy Spirit, he is sending us, you and me, to proclaim that first Easter message of good news. He is risen. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.